Good afternoon from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Mafia Birds and Titan's Weather. In addition, Dr. Ed Belbruno will join us to discuss low-energy spaceflight. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Rockatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On Berkeley Rock. I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad. How's the mafia treating you? They get a bad rap. Really? How they treat They're you? nice guys. Bake you a cake on your birthday, mow your lawn, shovel the snow. Hey, that's a deal. And really all they want is a little love. A little love. And doesn't everybody just want a little love? Is that in the form of a cold, hard cash? I don't know if you can put a price on love. <laughs> For everything else, it's MasterCard. Right. Well, but if you could, I'm sure Walmart would sell it. So a scientist has been wondering why cuckoos, also known as mafia birds, why their victims accept their harassment. Uh, I didn't even know they had victims. Warblers apparently are one of the um, hosts which cuckoo, or one species known as the cowbird, would go and ransack or force them to accept the cowbird's eggs. So basically the, the warblers forced to raise the cuckoo's offspring as their own. Right, and scientists have wondered why they're willing to go along with this. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, this somewhat controlled study, that if the warbler rejects the cowbird, what happens is 56% of the time, their nest gets ransacked, whereas the ones that accept their parasite's eggs, only 6% get ransacked. And it turns out, overall, the ones who accepted were still able to produce more offsprings for themselves than the ones that gone through the rejection process. So basically, the cuckoos are making the warblers an offer they can't refuse. I guess. Although I never saw the godfather give his godchild away to his enemies. (laughs) That would be a different sort of movie. Indeed. Something you'd see on Cinemax, I think. This was very interesting work carried out by Jeffrey Hoover from Illinois Natural History Survey. It's written in our very favorite journal, The Proceedings. Of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. Well, that's very fascinating, and I wonder what would happen if those cuckoos were to live on Titan. You mean that moon that goes around Saturn? Correct. It is actually one of Saturn's largest moons, and perhaps one of my favorites. It has its own volcanoes, right? <laughs> well, it has actually a lot of features that are very common with that of Earth. Starbucks, Walmart. <laughs> well, Starbucks is everywhere. I mean, you, you can find that on the Kuiper Bell objects, I think. <laughs> It's actually quite fascinating because Titan, with all of its geological features being so similar to that of Earth's, provides actually a very nice model system for astronomers to try and predict what will happen to the Earth in the future. Is this because of similarities in property and possibly weather conditions we might have in the future? Exactly. There's a lot of similarities. Titan is roughly, its atmosphere is roughly four times denser and ten times thicker than Earth's. Okay. But it's still dominated by things like nitrogen and instead of water vapor, it has methane. But methane acts very much like water in the atmosphere. And so it has a lot of other features that are very similar to that of Earth's. 
Methane atmosphere is actually quite interesting to some researchers because of what it might say about the constitution of uh, water vapor in our atmosphere and the oceans in our seas. Right. I think that's still one of the mysteries is how the chemistry or the after effects of methane in our atmosphere, how it's either uptaken by the soil or expelled from the soil and how it lives in the atmosphere. Right. Well, uh, apparently the process of methane on Titan is very much like that of water. During periods, first evaporate into the atmosphere and then huge torrential downpours in the poles Uh deposit huge lakes uh, in different regions. Uh But the interesting thing is that UV radiation from the sun now will break up this methane and release hydrogen and break it up into its constituents such that the amount of methane in the planet as a whole slowly starts to decrease. Okay. They're suggesting something similar to that might happen on Earth with the water vapor. Okay. So over geological time periods, they're saying UV could eventually break up the water vapor in the atmosphere and slowly dry out the planet. Wow. So all that water just wisps away from the Earth then, huh? Indeed. I'm sure we'll adapt. (laughs) I'm sure at that point, whoever's surviving will either drink something besides water or just enjoy their life in the matrix. Well, I heard ammonia is kind of tingly. (laughs) It was very fascinating, but given the fact that time resembles Earth quite so closely, a lot of people are going to start studying a lot more closely and see what else they can deduce regarding the future of Earth's atmosphere. Okay, very cool. So if we can survive on Titan, we can survive? Sure, you know, buy your summer home for Titan. And get the beachfront property, of course. Indeed. Work done by planetary scientist Jonathan Lunine of the University of Arizona. It was presented at the recent AAAS conference. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Ed Belbruno will join us to discuss low-energy spaceflight. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, space travel continues to be one of the final frontiers of human endeavors. Recently renewed efforts by the U.S. government and private enterprise have begun to reinvigorate interest in interplanetary spaceflight. But moving objects from one planetary body to the next is energetically very expensive using conventional routes. But alternative low-energy routes do exist. Well, joining us today to discuss these low-energy routes through space is Dr. Ed Belbruno. Dr. Belbruno is president of Innovation Orbital Design, is a collaborator in Princeton's Department of Astrophysical Sciences, and also a consultant for NASA. He is the author of numerous scientific and popular works on this subject, including the new release, Fly Me to the Moon, an insider's guide to the new science of space travel. Dr. Belbruno, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you. I think you've written a very uh, fascinating book on interplanetary spaceflight. Yeah, thanks. I'm curious, though, um, if maybe you can explain what are the conventional routes for uh, transferring objects between planetary bodies. The main conventional approach was done by this guy named Walter Hohmann back in the 1920s, a German engineer. Basically, it's, uh, they're, they're like straight-line shots between, if you want to go to the moon, for example, it's a straight-line shot between Earth and moon. It looks like it's almost like a straight line. And when you get to the moon, you've got to put your brakes on to go into orbit. Otherwise, you go flying off into space and you're dead. But his routes are fast. They use a lot of fuel because you have to slow down and use a lot of fuel to slow down to go into orbit about your destination body, the moon, for example. I see. So it's perhaps the straightest shot to getting to where you want to go. That's right. It's straight a shot. It's reliable. It works. It's easy to understand. And because of that, it was adopted by NASA, uh, by the Soviets, the Americans back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and has formed a backbone to get to Jupiter, Saturn, and beyond. But certainly it's very expensive because you have to use lots of fuel to slow down to go into orbit about your destination. Leaving your destination is pretty much standard. 
no matter what methods you use, and Homan's in particular, it uses the same kind of fuel you use even with much better ways to leave a destination. They're all going to use a certain amount because when you leave like the Earth, you're in its gravity well, and you have to use a lot of fuel to get out no matter which route you're using to get to your destination planet or body. But when you arrive there, this is where the drawback is, you have to slow down to go in orbit around the body you're going to, and Homan approach has always arrived much faster than the body's going, and you have to use a lot of fuel to slow down, which has always been accepted. Why haven't people tried to explore alternative methods then? Uh, prior to myself, <laughs> I say with complete modesty, uh, prior to myself in 1986, no one ever had, which really stunned me. I, I came into engineering at the Jet Propulsion Lab as a mathematician, not as an engineer really, already as a professor of math, so I came into the environment fresh with new viewpoints because I wasn't brought up in the, in the engineering school. And um, I asked that very question, and I was stunned to find out that there was a single shred in the literature about it. So being the kind of person who studies problems like that in my math field, I asked the question, well, geez, you know, why can't you arrive at the moon, for example? Not with the usual three-day route of Homan, but arrive there using some other route, for example, where you may arrive and, and go around the moon automatically without slowing down. Is that possible? And, and that was the first time that was approached in a serious way back in 1986. What insight did you have, and uh, what is the alternative route uh, that you've come up with? Well, the insight that I had was really, there was one, there were some theoretical mathematicians in the 60s in the Soviet Union who had studied very, very theoretical problems about multi-bodies orbiting each other and the idea that one could get captured by the other hundred of them or whatever the number was automatically. And I said, well, geez, even though that's a different setting, those same ideas might be applicable. So I knew there was a chance of pulling it off. And uh, the insight I had was that basically around the moon, uh, which is that's the place we're going to go, I figured that, well, geez, you know, the moon's gravity is pulling in all around it, and the Earth's gravity is pulling it, things away, away from the moon. So there's got to be a balancing place between them where everything cancels out as you're moving. Now, if you were fixed relative to the moon, you ask the question, where does the gravity balance? Then you end up with five locations where that happens. These are the famous five Lagrange points. For that to happen, you have to assume you're fixed relative to the Earth and moon. But my idea was different. I'm saying, what happens if you're moving with respect to the Earth and the moon and simultaneously all these gravity forces balance? Is there a place where that can happen? And if it did, that means you could come lofting into the moon, and if you'd be going at just the right speed, all these forces are balancing, and there might be a way to get pulled around the moon very easily, but in a very sensitive fashion. And um, I was inspired to find the region by doing a painting, which I did of the Earth-Moon system, and it shows the region very clearly on it after I did a painting. And then I went to the computer, and lo and behold, it was there. And it's a multidimensional region around the moon, and if you can go there, which means basically you have to arrive at the moon with the right speed, if you can do that, then you get captured for free. There's no break at all, and no one had ever thought you could do that. And prior to my doing it, uh, luckily, on the computer one day uh, for a project I was actually working on at JPL, which needed this technique, actually, which was a miracle I even got to work on a project which even wanted me to look, look at this kind of problem, could actually solve it and come up with a computer route that brought you to this very special region around the moon where you're captured for free. didn't have to slow down at all. Now, the first one I found in 1986 for the Lunar Getaway Special paper study at JPL took two years to get to the moon, and it was laughed at, even though, even though you arrived there with no energy required, fuel required for capture. I knew it was a big discovery. I knew it was really important. But the managers didn't feel that way because they said, well, you know, it takes two years to get there. 
And we really don't care if there's new dynamics going on. It's, it's just not going to be useful for us because we can get there in three days with home and white take two years. And they didn't really understand at that time how important this was. But I, but I stayed with it because I knew it was really important, especially if I could find a way to get to the moon, not in two years, but in much less time. And uh, basically the idea is you don't go directly to the moon. You fly by it. And you would think, why would you ever fly by the moon? Well, it turns out that to shorten the time to get captured to the moon for free in a time less than two years means that you have to fly way far from the Earth-Moon system. You go out four times the Earth-Moon distance to where the Sun and the Earth's gravity balance in another one of these strange regions. And then if you do it just right, you fall back to the Earth-Moon system. And the trick here is, as you're falling back, the Sun is pulling on you to slow you down. So by the time you reach the moon, the moon has just the right kind of speed relative to you and vice versa, so you get captured for free. It's like saying you want to go from New Jersey to New York, but, but you want to do it via China. <laughs> now, this route takes not two years, and the beauty of this route is it only takes three months. And the orbit design business for spacecraft, three months is very, very good. I mean, that, that certainly raised a lot of eyebrows, and luckily... It was used immediately to rescue a Japanese spacecraft and get it to the moon, which validated the whole thing. Yes, I, I'm wondering if you can uh, talk about that, since you do start off the book with uh, your involvement with the uh, Hitton spacecraft. Yeah, basically, right at the time I was leaving JPL, and I was leaving precisely because they thought my work was useless. This <laughs> research I was doing on automatic captures, and even though I was working on other things, which were more standard work at the lab, like the Cassini mission at Saturn right now, that was uh, something I was working on, my side work on this wasn't viewed very well, and they asked me to leave. And the last couple months I was there uh, cleaning out my desk, I heard about the fact that Japan had launched a mission to the moon to get a little robotic spacecraft there. They launched two spacecraft hooked together around the Earth in a big elliptical orbit, and the idea was the little one about the size of a grapefruit was to go off to the moon on a home and transfer, a three-day route. And Japan wanted to be the third country in history to put something in orbit around the moon, so they were excited about this. And uh, it failed. They lost communication with it. So the mother craft, with basically very, very little fuel, far less than what you would need to place something in orbit around the moon. And they want to rescue their mission by somehow getting that one to the moon when it, when it was never designed to go there. So I was asked to do that. And I didn't want to work on it at first because I just wanted to get out of there. <laughs> I, for some reason, at that moment they asked me, I saw how to do it. And uh, I don't know, you know, I, in retrospect, I don't even know how I ever solved it, but it was just one of those lucky things where this, everything came together at once. And that's why I discovered this uh, three-month route. And my collaborator at the time, Jim Miller, went to the computer, verified this was right, and we faxed it off to them. And a year later, the thing fired its rocket engines and got there in October of 91. Well, after the validation of this route, have NASA and other agencies started to consider more seriously as a means for transfer to... Absolutely. It turned out, it's really funny how things work. It turns out that right about the time this happened, when the Berlin Wall came down, and there was so much, there were people lay, being laid off all over the place. So as a result, I think NASA was less inclined to want to take risks for anything. And this work, although it was known to select people... And it got in Discover Magazine and some other places, but it didn't really catch on because people were just not were being very conservative um, in the early 90s. However, the European Space Agency asked me to uh, show them how to do this, not for the hidden kind of spacecraft, but for another one. And they wanted the two-year route, the original <laughs> one that NASA made fun of. And I said, why would you ever want to learn that one? It takes two years to get there. And they said, well, we want to do a technology demonstrator mission, which would take two years. We can test the ion engines. 
So that gave rise ultimately to the Smart One mission, uh, which arrived at the moon in 204, and uh, that used the original two-year-out that I had found back in 86. So the Europeans used it, and ultimately uh, my ideas uh, stayed at JPL, and they adopted them for a Europa Orbiter mission study, uh, which was to put a spacecraft in orbit around Europa, which they were looking at in 97. And that mission concept developed into the Prometheus mission to visit all the moons, Jupiter, a lot of them anyhow, the Galilean moons. And that mission got canceled last year. But this work is being looked at now for returning to the moon for NASA. And in uh, the year 2000, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Dan Golden, in 99, I mean. And as a result of meeting him and some many other people within NASA, their eyes opened up saying, well, how, how come we never heard of this? <laughs> Even though some people at JPL were changing the terminology I made and developing it, you know, trying to state that it was something new, but ultimately there was a realization that was not the case, and now this work is doing very well, and this Fly Me to the Moon book is certainly talking about all this. It has renewed interest by President Bush, for example, to put a man on Mars, also rekindled interest in this means of transfer. Yes, it's interesting. George Bush's presidency, of course, has been marked by controversy with regards to Iraq and mm -hmm. things like that, and for good reason. I mean, many people don't like that. However, I got to say, as regarding space exploration, George Bush has done probably the most of any president since Kennedy uh, by announcing this. It's rekindled a tremendous amount of interest in this transfer. The result of that has been outstanding. And this particular route to the moon that was found for Hitton is now at the center, I think, of the return of the moon as the way to bring supplies there because it does allow you to double your payload at the same cost to the moon. Is it more useful for a payload rather than manned personnel just because of the time that's involved? Yeah, you don't want to take three months to bring anybody to the moon for obvious reasons, but certainly for large payloads, too, the kind of thing you need for a manned base that, that the Bush administration is talking about, this is an ideal route. And if you have to put tons on the moon, tons, to support a base at the cost of a million dollars a pound, you can imagine how quickly that multiplies, especially... For a country like the U.S., where normally big money is not a problem, but this is such big money that this route has really risen to the fore. And so you also mentioned that you were working with the European Space Agency and Japan as well. I'm curious, are a lot of other countries also interested in using this route? China, for example. I visit China often, and, you know, they know my work quite well over there. They are doing a mission to the moon fairly soon, and I know they're very interested in my work. They really are sticking with the home and transfer if they do lunar missions right now. They're not looking at this... However, I, uh, Brazil is quite interested in this, and they are planning a little tiny satellite to use this route to the moon. And the United States, like I say, is planning to use it pro probably when they do the base. But besides them, India's got a space program, and, uh, but they're, they're using a home and transfer as well. I think for these countries starting out, a home and transfer is the easiest, safest thing to do. So, no, it's not being used right now by any other country, but it is being considered by Brazil and certainly by the U.S., However, there's not like a lot of people beating the door to get to the moon now. I mean, even though President Bush said we're going back, it's not one of those things where you see lunar spaceships going up every day. It's, it's still like one every two years or three years at most. What do you see as the future for, uh, well, space flight in general and then manned space flight uh, more particularly? Well, that's a really, you know, good question. It's expensive, very expensive, and there's no new way to get into orbit. Uh, you have to still use chemical rockets. And the new system the U.S. is developing is really just Apollo again. So there's been, since 50 years ago, no advances really, except a couple circuits here and there, you know, computers. But the basic rocket technology has not changed at all. And with those current ways, it's just really expensive. So 
basically, the way I feel about it is, if there was ever a problem in the world economy like we had back in World War One period with the Great Depression, I think spacecraft travel would just stop. Um, regarding going back to the moon, uh, a lunar base is going to probably be a couple hundred billion dollars. I think at the end of the day, they're going to look at that and say, can we afford this, even for the U.S.? So I would say the following. Unless the United States or somebody can invent a new way to go from the ground up to orbit, what most of the cost is, a new way which is cheap, like, like you see in Star Wars, you just get the ground and fly up into space. Unless you can do that, I think the future for space travel is very, very precarious. However, the future for robotic space travel would be probably very safe because that's always going to be inexpensive, relatively speaking. Well, it's certainly be interesting to see how that unfolds. Dr. Bell Bruna, I want to thank you very much for joining us today and uh, talking about fascinating developments in flying to the moon. Thanks, you. It's been a real thrill talking to but Berkeley, California. Hello to everybody wherever I'm talking, <laughs> and a great honor to be in your show. And don't forget, everybody out there, Fly Me to the Moon, Princeton University Press, the best book you're going to get on space travel. Indeed, indeed. I hope they uh, all go pick that up again. It's Fly Me to the Moon, an insider's guide to the new science of space travel. And you were just listening to Dr. Ed Belbruno discussing low-energy spaceflight. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Please, give me second grace. Please, give me second face. Falling far down The first time around Now I just sit on the ground In your way All right, welcome back, and we're ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. That's right, it's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Homin or Low Energy Transfer. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, are they more like a Homan or are they more like a low-energy transfer? Dr. Belbrun, are you ready to play a game? Yes. Okay. Hope I can do this. <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. Person number one, Oprah Winfrey. Uh, I would say um, a Homan. She's a high, high cost. <laughs> She's very energetic and very high cost, and that's not a cheap show. Indeed, indeed. Okay, uh, number two is the famed NBA player uh, Shaquille O'Neal. I would say um, uh, Homan. Just very efficient uh, player. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, number three, of course, the famed uh, physicist Albert Einstein. Geez, I would say Einstein is definitely low energy. The work is very cutting edge, and it was ahead of its time. Indeed. Seemed almost effortless, I guess, to him. <laughs> yeah, to him it was. All right. Number four, pop singer Britney Spears. Britney Spears, I would say low energy. She's uh, too cutting edge. She's so far ahead of her time, she's burned herself up. <laughs> happened pretty quickly, oddly enough. <laughs> yeah, very, very quickly, yep. And she is high energy, but I think she's quite efficient. She's not, she, you know, she's not someone who has Oprah Winfrey kind of huge platform. It's more streamlined. All right, and finally, number five, uh, the President of the United States, George Bush. Uh, I would say Holman, because his government platform of the Republican Party definitely likes big money, big projects, and they're not, they're not interested really in saving lots of money. Dr. Belbruno, I want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around playing our game and, of course, talking <laughs> yeah. about your new book, Fly Me to the Moon, an insider's guide to the new science of space travel. Well, thank you very much for being on your show. It was certainly our pleasure. Okay. 
And now life, in its infinite wisdom, has given you two eyes to see with piercing sight. What does it mean? If you know its retinal, you truly see what others do not. Thank you, Mohander. And now it's for us with this week's question of the week. Down here in the south, we eat all sorts of critters and all sorts of minerals. My mama used to say, you never know what you're going to get, but you better get your iodine. If you know or think you know what iodine is for, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but at least your thyroids will be small. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Rocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Rocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.